This is Erica in Edmonton, Shannon in Durham, and Chip in Durham. Welcome to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 53, Point of No Return. Yes, welcome back. And as always, many thanks for joining us on our bi-weekly journey through the five-year saga that is Babylon 5. We are so glad to have you all with us. And this week, you are with us for Point of No Return, a another sort of generic title, but at least it actually seems to mean something for Babylon 5 and her residence this time. I think so. It's, it's almost this- kind of an uncanny episode, wouldn't you say? <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> uh, this uh, It feels like a sort of capital big deal episode. Uh, so we brought in some help to talk about it. And we have a brand new guest this time, as Chip just very cannily alluded to. Uh, a, uh, she's a Babylon 5 fan and geek of many trades. She is the managing editor of the Hugo-nominated Uncanny magazine. She's a member of the board of organizers for the Chicago Nerd Social Club. She has a huge brain hoard of obscure sci-fi and fantasy knowledge. And if that's not enough, she spins actual fire. Mitchie Trotto, welcome to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. We are very glad to have you. We are thrilled to have you here. Mitchie, tell us a little bit about your history with Babylon 5. Were you watching it as it was airing? Did you discover it later? Uh, when did you come to it? Oh, I started watching it when it was airing, and I just may have dated myself there. Uh, I remember <laughs> when Babylon 5 came on, it was on at roughly the same time as Deep Space Nine, which I've been thinking of because we were all talking about Star Trek yesterday at a conference. And Babylon 5 grabbed me in a way that DS9 did not until they brought on Worf years and years later. Uh, I loved how there was original, it seemed right off the bat that, that there was a long plan for overarching uh, storylines for each of the characters and the show was going somewhere it had it had an actual trajectory and i had a thing for watching shows that had those series long arcs uh like i loved ro- watching robotech when i was a kid and this was one of oh, the first we can be friends oh yes <laughs> <laughs> babylon 5 was one of the first um adult live action sci-fi series that i remember seeing on tv where it clicked all of those like oh this is going to be like robotech i'm really going to like this Oh boy, I can see I can see hearts and chips eyes right now. I have the faintest <laughs> idea of what you mean, protoculture. <laughs> well, you know, the Vorlons very could easily have been um related to the Invid, I think. That just might be me. But Oh, now I've now, now you've got me fantasizing about uh, transforming Star Furies. Ooh. <laughs> oh, pro- uh, protoculture, uh, actually protoculture-powered uh, Membari ships. If y'all don't mind, Michi and I are just going to take over the podcast here. <laughs> <laughs> Do we need to schedule like an, an, an extra, a Babylon 5, audio guide to Babylon 5 extra that's just you guys talking complete gibberish for a while? Either that or an <laughs> <Yes>. intervention. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, I, I'm going to rest the reins back and, uh, you know, steer us back into Babylon 5, firmly. Um, although that sounded delightful. Whatever those words were you guys just said, sure, sounded great. <laughs> Someone um, will understand them. <laughs> uh, so so let's get, get back into the world of Babylon 5. Let's start off with, with what you need to know about Babylon 5 coming into this story. Uh, 
It is run by the Earth Alliance. And back on Earth, President Clark just declared martial law. Zach Allen, second in command of B5 Security, has joined Nightwatch, a paramilitary organization whose fascist policies have begun to worry Zach. Narn Ambassador Jakar recently had a spiritual revelation and is currently in jail for assaulting Centauri Ambassador Londo Malari. Londo's machinations and political connections were instrumental in the resubjugation of Jakar's people. And that brings us to point of no return. The declaration of martial law sends the station into a tizzy. Earth's Senate has been disbanded, and General Haig, the B-5 command staff's closest ally, is on the run and fighting for his life. Nightwatch assumes control of station security until Captain Sheridan uses a legal technicality and Zack's help to arrest all Nightwatch members and has Jakar's Narns fill in on security detail. Londo, meanwhile, is apprehensive about his place in history and invites the previous emperor's third wife, a seer named Lady Morella, for a visit to Babylon 5. She tells him both he and his former attache Veer will be emperor, that one will become emperor after the other one dies. Dun, dun, dun. I made some spook. Yeah. <laughs> And and they had some spoo. Yes, very important plot point right there. <laughs> Stephen actually gasped out loud. Oh, look, spoo! Like, okay, <laughs> you're you're paying attention. I appreciate that. Uh, I think I think maybe before we we get into the real meat of this episode, we might as well sort of start there at the end of the B plot with Londo and Veer sitting uncomfortably together, pondering the implications of Lady Morella's prophecy. Um, now, we've seen some of Londo's visions. We are not clear on what they mean, but they clearly make him uncomfortable and he wants them to not be true. Uh, Chip, what do you make of Lady Morella's words, both the talk of being emperor and that cryptic advice she gives him? Well, uh, my favorite bit of the whole Lady Morella subplot is the line that I keep coming back to over and over again in my personal life. I just, uh, it's, it's one of the, this is one of the most key themes in Babylon 5, and that's about personal choice. Um, she tells Londo, we always have a choice. We only say we have no choice when we're trying to make ourselves comfortable with the choice we've already made. And that's mm-hmm. like the freaking mission statement of Babylon 5 right there in, in terms of uh, what the author is saying about um, personality and uh, personal responsibility and all this other stuff. So I love this. I, I love this subplot uh, for what it does with um, – what it does with Londo, we've seen him at various times during this series so far, at once being gun-shy about what he's doing, and at other times just sort of jumping into it and, and being really nasty about it, like the time when he uh, sort of uh, uh, belittled and humiliated the Narn-designated um, uh, representative mm-hmm. after they subjugated uh, the Narn homeworld. So... Um, I, I, I like this moment where Londo doesn't know which way to turn and he's trying to um, get more information to get himself um, out of the mess that he feels like he's in. Um, and uh, Major Barrett turns in a pretty good performance herself. Uh, this is uh, pretty good. You know, you, you, Mitchie, Mitchie, you were just talking about Star Trek. <laughs> this is this is this is rapprochement here. This is Spanish rapprochement. 
She is the she is very much the opposite of Loxana Troy in this episode. Just her the way that she holds herself and the way that she delivers her lines. It's very restrained, very serious. And neither of those words ever applied to Loxana. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, for, for we, and perhaps we're perhaps we're uh, stepping ahead of ourselves a little bit for some listeners, but uh, this is the widow of Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry um, participating in the in participating in this. And the backstory is obviously uh, at the time there was a big stupid nerd fight rivalry on the internet, such as it was back then between Star Trek fans and Babylon Five fans, and. Um, JMS invited Major Barrett uh, to do this role that he wrote specifically for her as sort of a, a way to get more Star Trek fans to check out Babylon 5 and actually to sort of um, try to defuse the rivalry a little bit. I don't think that um, the Star Trek uh, creative team ever really uh, reciprocated. But uh, that <laughs> wait. So she's she's the she's the widow of of Emperor Turhan, the the free, the emperor. Yeah. Yes. So is this is he is he making a parallel there between Gene Roddenberry and and some sort of a an emperor figure in the <laughs> ah, world of science fiction? I don't know about that. Um, JMS did uh, coyly sort of say something to the effect that the line of greatness not being appreciated until after death. Yeah, maybe could have been read for Roddenberry a bit, among many others. Um, what I love about not only Majel Barrett's performance, um, as you said, she's, you know, night and day from Loxana Troy. Not that Loxana Troy is, you know, a dumb character, but she is a very no. out there character. She is very in your face and um, commanding in one way, whereas uh, Lady Morella is commanding in a totally different manner, that she is restrained, she is regal. Um, and she pulls off all of these portentous lines so well and makes them believable in a way that's much better than the previous prophetess we saw back in, was it uh, season one? Signs and portents, yeah. Yeah, signs and portents mm. where, you know, that lady was all, you know, trembles and, and scared of her power. Here we the have shadows Morella. have come for Lord Kiro. <laughs> and now we have a different prophetess and we have a different Centauri woman that we finally get to see some depth. Um, the Centauri women have been few and far between. We had uh, Adira, who was just, you know, a very pretty girl and very much <sighs> in love with the guy. And then we had the uh, prophetess lady. Um, and I, I forgot her, her name, name now. Um, yeah, me too. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> and now we get something different here from uh, Major Barrett's performance. Um JMS also spoke about how, you know, he wanted to do this essentially again because he did the same kind of thing with uh, Walter Koenig. Uh, when he first managed to get Walter Koenig cast, um, there was a lot of talk about, you know, oh, Chekhov. Oh, really? Chekhov on Babylon 5? Why would you do that? And we got Bester. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I love that JMS went to the trouble of doing this again to give these actors ways to break out of the typecasting, to try and embrace other science fiction properties and get everybody sort of on the same page. I love it. Yeah, it's sort of simultaneously an olive branch and passive aggression. But I don't <laughs> care because it, it's turned out it turned out well in both in both respects. Yes. Was that was that a little bit of whiplash for you seeing that for the first time, Mitchie? Uh, actually, I think 
Bester was more of whiplash for me than Lady Morella, mm-hmm. um, just because I, I, I love Majel Bar- uh, Barrett and everything that she's in, and it's just seeing Bester show up and that being something so completely out of left field. For uh, when I was so familiar with Chekhov, was like I gained a lot of respect for what <laughs> Walter Koenig was able to do with that with that role. Um, mm-hmm. But I I also liked how there were this was a science fiction story where they weren't really it was actually having to deal with the consequences of being in the same place and not just going you know bouncing from planet to planet and doing mm-hmm. the exploring thing, which up until that point that's mostly what I'd seen with Star Trek. So mm-hmm. Babylon Five actually taking that idea and here's like a different way of showing science fiction in outer space with all the things that we like with aliens and all the different technology, but really being able to dig down into these nitty gritty stories about politics and about choices, which I think that's actually a really great way of describing what Babylon 5 is overall. Like it's asking you to consider the ramifications of your choices and what does it mean to have personal responsibility? Mm hmm. Yeah, and talking about it as a science fiction show, which it very, very much is. It's also interesting that in in this episode we have the science fiction, we have the we have the political elements, quite a bit of them, which we'll get to that yeah. in a minute. Uh, and we also sort of have this, you know, the 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 spiritual. I mean, spiritual is not quite quite the right word, but we we've got a lot of spirituality in a lot of Babylon Five. In this particular episode, it's it's more almost you know fantasy, fantastical because we have a prophetess, a seer, who I mean. There's no way of knowing if her if her sort of nonsense words are actually going to amount to anything down the road, but she does have a a brief vision that matches something that that Londo has had before. So you know, we, there's there's something going on that's uh, that's perhaps outside the bounds of the the science fictiony part of it. Did you have a problem watching this show uh, and and? reconciling the the religion and the spirituality and the fantasy parts of it with the spaceships and the lasers and the pow pow bang bang and i loved reading the x-men comics so the idea of somebody being able to see into the future in a science fiction story did not throw me at all Uh, mm -hmm. um it's yeah it's like okay well i'm reading comics about mutants that can you know that can see into the future and i think when in the you know when you have lady morella saying that there's still choices what she's yeah it's it's not saying that what she sees is going to happen for sure but it's a well if you keep doing this this is pro- yeah this is probably going to happen and this is going to happen but there are you still have a choice which can determine how this future happens and whether or not it will happen on your terms or outside of your control which i think is a nice way of framing it uh bringing in you know precog precog powers and without necessarily saying that okay it is it's giving it that magic that magical feel and i think the way that they handle spirituality by making it something that is a deep part of each of the characters as opposed to sort of a a tool that comes out when the story needs it to appear also makes it fit seamlessly into that world it's saying that there's i like how there's not a hard line between spirituality and the science fiction setting because they mesh really well. 
Here, here. Yeah. And uh, speaking of, of what she sees, the part that she says is inescapable is the fact that Londo will become emperor. He, he can't get around that. And then, of course, Vera will, too. Did, I mean, did anybody else love that last scene as much as I did with the two of them just sitting there and <laughs> so sort of much staring awkward. at each other? <laughs> yes, that's exactly it. The, the, the way they were able to hang on to that awkwardness all the way through from, you know, like over excessive hand gestures and and looking back and then looking away it's uh, i'm just peter jurisic and uh and stephen first just nailed it especially nailed it stephen first i love him in yeah. this episode yes mm-hmm. yeah he is fantastic i mean that was something that stephen commented on while we were watching it and and he was just like wow veer actually has kind of a backbone at this point which makes complete sense because he's been an ambassador he's been on mimbar for a while he comes back and and he he sort of stands up to to londo because you know londo's trying to rewrite his reports again um however i do think that it's very funny that even standing up and giving delivering an ultimatum to londo he's still pretty sweet because he's like and then i'll come back here and we're gonna try to work this out like that's that's his threat we're gonna work this out well, I think it's, <laughs> it's very it, adorable i think it kind of also like every time i see that scene it and it the first time I watched it, I remember what it read to me as is that even though Londo is being overbearing with Veer, it was also reflected to me that he really wants Veer to succeed. He's saying, like, no, you're writing the report and you're being honest and that's sweet and naive, but no, this is not going to get you anywhere. I'm going to have to redo this for you. It's like a parent redoing their kids' homework because they don't <laughs> want them to get in trouble in school. Yeah. There there's also the aspect that I just thought of with um I see some parallels between Veer and Zack in this story mm-hmm. and, um, and, and the episodes mm-hmm. preceding because um, they're both sort of trying to stand up for themselves, but also feel like they need to stay connected, stay part of the you know chain of command or the, the, the culture or whatever that Zack has trouble breaking away from Nightwatch. Veer is trying to stand up for himself, but he's still loyal to Londo. I mean, he he's he's about to storm out of the room and then the call about Lady Morella comes in and he, you know, he turns around and he's muttering under his breath, but he still wants to find out what's going on here. He's still, you know, these are two characters that are trying to find their own way, but they feel really loyal to the um, organizations that they're part of. Poor Zack is part of two. He's part of uh, the security and has got his relationship with Garibaldi, but he's also part of Nightwatch, and that's part of Earth government, and he just doesn't want to be disloyal to any of that, and Fear doesn't want to be disloyal to Londo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that's probably a good place to segue into, I guess, what's the real guts of this episode. Uh, and that's, you know, that Earth's political structure is basically crumbling and General Haig is on the run. The the command staff is in danger of being find, found out. And then to add insult to injury, we've got Blondie McArian and his Nightwatch buddies <laughs> that are gleefully taking over. Gleefully taking over control of the station. Yeah, that's my nickname for that guy. Well Ugh. done. He he yes. plays he plays that character very well. He's awful. He's just despicable, and he does a great job with it. Um, and I just feel like yeah, this at this point, can we get any more tense? I am like my my shoulders were up around my ears as I watched yeah. most of this episode. So so yeah, let's let's dive into into the a plot. So hey, martial law. It was sort of just declared at the end of the previous episode, like oh, that's a thing that happened with no real 
no real it doesn't give you a hint for what's going to happen to the station or earth or anything else and now we get to see those pieces falling into place the senate's been disbanded uh you know we've got the alexander and general haig and his folks um and on the others also on on the run or, or battling and and stuff is just sort of very quickly taking a turn and, and falling apart um any initial thoughts on on that part of this story uh i think it was very well played overall very well directed overall i'll go, i'll come back to direction in a little bit uh with the actors but the the pacing of it um you've got londo and veer going back and forth about veer's report and londo opens the door they've been inside his room and not seeing and the second they open the door there's people crossing back and forth all over the place londo has to stop a passing mimbari to find out you know oh martial law has been declared and that just immediately sets the tone for this part of the episode the fact that this is momentous this is bad and things are going to fall apart very quickly uh so just right away yeah that was one of the areas that we tried to be a little cautious of when we recorded uh, the previous episode, Messages from Earth. You know, um, you know they, they declare martial law at the end of that episode, and we were a little cagey on whether that felt like a cliffhanger or not. And Of course it felt like a cliffhanger to those of us who knew what was coming because uh, it, it, it's not just this little thing that happens in the background. You know, we deal with the ramifications immediately in this episode. Mm-hmm. I also like how we f- how the episode opens up with Londo and Veer find uh, being the le- yeah being the characters through which we find out that martial law has been declared and that it's affecting the station. It's we don't see we don't see the reactions of the command staff first. We don't see reactions of really even humans first. We see the reactions mm-hmm. of the aliens of the people mm-hmm. who live on Babylon Five, and I think that's a, that was a really interesting choice that shows how this was not just something that was going to affect the human staff of the station. This was something that was going to affect everybody. And what that says about how deeply connected all of the, you know, all of these people are, and that it's not just EarthGov, what EarthGov does has an effect on everybody else regardless of whether or not they're human i mean like that's a lot that you put into just those few moments of a scene you know that's true it's a, it's it's an important thing too because that was that was actually a thing where steven was a little bit confused at the beginning he's like why is everybody just suddenly rushing around the station like they're all they're all rushing through the hallways because of this that why why would that be happening and i said well you know maybe maybe they're trying to make arrangements to get out i said you know we live in canada i said if you were visiting the united states and the u.s declared martial law wouldn't you want to get your booty out of there like asap and he was like <laughs> okay good point good point <laughs> yep I also like that um, later in the later in the episode, as people are crowding around the ISN uh, screens to and watching the report of uh, the attack on General Haig and his ships, um, there's there's general applause. You know, we yeah. we 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 see um, we see in security there are night watch people and there are not night watch people, uh, but the general population on the station is more or less. Um, antagonistic to earth and to the to the declare declaration of martial law um, well they've also gotten um the reports that the possibility of clark assassinating santiago so they, right, they right. are predisposed to be yeah. upset so so him. we're seeing we're seeing um the population on b5 and uh, aliens and humans to a certain extent i think it's 
I think you can extrapolate from everything that we've seen up to this point that a good portion of the people on this station uh, feel more affinity to their home on this spinning tin can than they necessarily do to uh, the home world. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's uh, that's it. It's it just reinforces how Babylon Five is in and of itself. It is a home for so many different people, and that's one of the things that I loved so much about the show is that it's actually and it doesn't even have to give you snap you know give you in depth look an in depth look at everybody who lives on the station, but just how those scenes are framed and the fact that we can see. Not just humans, but humans and alien, you know, the different alien species and all of them are together at that moment paying attention. And it's they're sharing a lot of the same sentiments that says a lot without having to have any in-depth dialogue. Mm-hmm. And that leads us to the the riot scene, which, uh, <laughs> you know, I will which I'm going to jump back a bit to. Of- Go ahead, Shannon. Okay, I was just going to say I felt that leading into that riot scene was a genius little bit of directing. Um, you know, this is a TV show that has tried very hard mm-hmm. uh, it, at the time to be on the cutting edge of special effects, to do the best it could, to create um, the most beautiful effect shots that it could. And in this particular episode, they are on a TV screen inside of our scene. So it's the the viewer, we, the TV viewer, are seeing things from the perspective of the people on the station, rather than getting the firefight in in its full glory. And I thought that was a brave choice. You know, I would I would say that I think the the directorial choices were pretty solid in this story. Like um, like you guys were saying, uh, having the and part of its writing, I would guess as well. And, and actually, maybe these choices are more writing because they could have come from the script. It's hard to know. But the choice to make the uh, the Centauri the the eyes that we learn about its effect on the station through, and this this particular choice to have it you know on a TV station in front of in front of people. So I feel like the, the directorial choices or at least those. Decisions are good. I'm not sure that the execution uh, bears out those choices all that well. As a matter of fact, um, you know, before the opening credits during the cold open, Stephen is always watching very carefully to determine mm-hmm. if it's a Mike Vehar directed episode. And he said, like, <laughs> 40, 30, 40 seconds in, he just turned to me and said, not Mike Vehar. Like, he was just <laughs> absolutely certain. And sure enough, it was not. Um, I mean, I, th- there were there were some things that I found that were that were good um for example the scene of sheridan sitting in his quarters uh with the lights off just sort of staring and then the lights come Mm -hmm. on and it's his wake-up call in the middle of the morning i think i think that was fantastic but the the riot scene itself and like later the slow motion walking through the corridors to get to the the climactic scene at the end it's just jms's use of (laughs) slow-mo It was it was it was cheesy, and I don't think it's JMS. I think it's the director. No. So I it just mm. it, it's 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 a crutch I think for for directors that aren't particularly artsy because it's something that people expect to see. So I really thought, and and Stephen thought as well, that the direction of the riot scene was fairly clunky. You got a whole bunch of people sort of standing around. They're not all quite focused in the right place like they're supposed to be. When when Captain Sheridan and I do like Captain Sheridan speaking 
you know, he's he's giving his lines while we're seeing the riot happen. It's that's a little bit of mm-hmm. a cheesy choice too, but I still kind of like yeah. that juxtaposition. But you sort of have people at first sort of looking around like like some people are looking at one speaker and some people are looking at another like where's his voice coming from? It it, it didn't play out all that smooth uh this time at least watching it. I think it maybe had more impact the first time I saw it cuz I wasn't looking for the directorial touches. What did you guys feel about that particular scene? Was it a really powerful gut punch to you or were you nitpicking like uh, we were? I was not nitpicking. A gu- not a gut punch, but um you know, seeing it more than once certainly, yeah, you got you start to see things that around the edges and this is something I think Babylon 5 has had a lot of difficulty with all along is trying to handle like these large scenes with tons mm-hmm. of people in them chaotic scenes like this. I thought it did as <laughs> as well as could be expected. And I think I'm slightly influenced by the fact, and this could be all of the different actors just being on their game, but there was so much in the way of body language and facial expression that at the time I was watching today was sort of attributing maybe to the director, but you know, so many different little bits of, um, you know, Veer's facial reactions, Lady Morella and Talon in the elevator, just sort of like looking at each other and realizing that the other <laughs> one's there. Stuff like when, that. When her, eye, when, when her eye goes down and she sees the, the security patch on Talon's. Yes. That is perfect. <laughs> yeah. So stuff like that really worked for me. And again, this may be down more to the actors making really good choices. Um, the riot scene overall worked for me but it you know as we've said we've we've come to expect that there have been some issues with scenes like this um you know what i liked this time around was poor zach just sort of standing there and not getting into the fray (laughs) he's just like looking back and forth what the hell do i do um not literally stuck in place not knowing which way to go which has been his arc the last several episodes ever since the night watch thing kicked in um, and then to have, you know, right at the end, yes, with Sheridan's voiceover telling people of the announcement of martial law. And then at the end, the chair breaks the screen. It, it, to me, it felt like a very fun metaphor. Maybe it was over the top. Maybe it was a bit cheesy, but I liked it. <laughs> Mitchie, Mitchie, what did you think? It's yeah, the the Sheridan reading the scene is it's I appreciate what it was trying to do. But going back and watching it now, it just it read very it it felt very too much on the nose for me. Um, I yeah I it's I can see what it's trying to do but I don't know if it was if that sort of juxtaposition was even necessary to really you know to hammer home the idea that this is a mess people are making choices that they are not happy with Sheridan's not happy having to read the declaration of martial law you know poor Zach sitting around looking around being like what do I do I have no idea I'm I have no good choices here and they all suck um <laughs> it and the riot scene is it's it's hard going back and watching that scene with all of the science fiction shows te- just science fiction tv shows that i've seen in the years since i've seen this episode where it's hard not to compare it to things that ha- you know to ep- scenes that similar scenes that i've seen in similar shows where i feel like a riot in order to really have that sort of emotional impact that they wanted to have for that scene would have to be really messy. And I didn't want to be able to track what people were doing so well, because I want it, it felt too, it felt like I was able to see too much of uh, too much individual things that were going on. If I saw a riot scene, I wanted to see, I wanted it to be as messy 
visually as it was making me feel emotionally. Like that, what that wasn't quite meshing for me. Yeah, the mm-hmm. fact that you could see Blondie McCarian get decked by a civilian, yeah, uh, very clearly, <laughs> and and you were glad of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, I just, I, and maybe. Maybe it's suffering by comparison because I felt Chip and I both were mentioning this as we watched the parallel switching back and forth from Sheridan getting the briefing and talking to his command staff about the announcement at the same time as Nightwatch's meeting and planning how they're going to take over. That the, the flipping back and forth that I felt was really effective, and that may be another reason that the riot mm-hmm. scene is less effective. Maybe. Uh, and, yeah. And yeah. Like uh, when General Smith's and this is scripting, not direction, but when General Smith's uh, tells uh, Sheridan to look at this as an opportunity and then we flip to the Night Watch and uh, Blondie McCarrion's talking about this is an opportunity to do this. And so, so, I mean, that's all scripting. As far as direction's concerned, I think that Babylon 5 always they had so much in their way they were cheap it was a cheaply made show it was on a network that was disintegrating around them year after year and in those circumstances you either get the directors that you can get on your budget or you get directors who just sort of come into their own uh mike vehar and janet greek are among the best directors that you get on Babylon 5 and you can always tell when they're doing it and then you have other directors who just turn in adequate adequate jobs I mm-hmm. I didn't Jim Johnston's work on this episode didn't bother me a whole lot I and the riot scene didn't bother me a whole lot it didn't feel bad to me it just felt adequate um yep uh, but at this point I'm paying a lot more attention to the script and characters than I am the blocking and tackling yeah, mm-hmm. I did appreciate that even you know, when we were able since we were able to see so much of what was going on in the riot that we actually saw there were some female civilians who were mm-hmm. getting into it. It was mm-hmm. actually I'm like this is something that I wouldn't expect to see on a broadcast television show where they would actually show women being just as much into the bra- into the brawling uh, and giving as good as they were getting. So that was something I'm like I hadn't noticed that before and I actually kind of appreciated mm-hmm. being able to see that. Yeah, I'm not sure when the last time is you you rewatched this, but as we've been going through this for the podcast, we have noticed that there have been a lot of female characters in the background. Um, you know, there's plenty, quite a few that get lines as well, but there are just a lot of female extras. And they do, when there are action scenes like this, they are not always sitting on the sidelines. This is not the first time we've seen random women, you know, getting in on the fight. And that's yet another thing that I just love about Babylon 5. Yeah, and we've got the same uh, diversity of ethnicity. Of you know, and yes. it's, you know, the Night Watch group has all these different um, skin tones, and uh, the security forces that stay on Garibaldi's and on the command staff side are a mixture as well. Um, the riot scene itself provides a bunch of aliens as well getting mm-hmm. pulled into the fight along with the along with the humans. Um, so that's something that's been consistent um, kind of through the whole show. Mm-hmm. Well, at, at one point, there's someone somewhere in there. Somebody mentioned uh, Sheridan's sort of use of the legal loophole to to close this thing off and, and and get the upper hand. That is the that's the kind of thing we have seen before from both Sheridan and Sinclair before him. I think that's one of the things mm-hmm. that 
that uh, JMS decided to keep consistent from character to character because we had Sinclair exploiting a loophole to use military funds to solve a labor conflict back in By Any Means Necessary. And then later on, when Sheridan gets to the station, he also dips into the military budget to pay his and Ivanova's rent in A Race Through Dark Places. So for me, this solution seemed like exactly the kind of thing I would expect him to recognize as he's reading between the lines of General Smith's message. Did that yeah. did that play nicely for you? or was it too cutesy? I kind of, I was sort of looking at Sheridan being like, it took you this long to figure out what he (laughs) was telling you? Yeah, there's that. Mm, It was fairly obvious. And like, even with the, uh, with the, with the generals, uh, his facial expressions and his body language, he was very clearly trying to get a message across without being too, uh, you know, without being too obvious. But I'm like, Sheridan, come on, seriously. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I didn't get it the first time I saw it. <laughs> but maybe I'm yeah, just dense. Yeah, it's, it's such a quick thing listening to it the first time around. So people who aren't familiar with military order and that sort of thing, may yeah, I don't know that I got it the first time either. Um, I do like, like you said, how the uh, general, the actor is uh, Louis Arquette, father of Rosanna, mm. Patricia, David, all of the, all of the Arquettes. Oh, uh, oh. Do, yes, does this, um, does this bit, and he does a very good job of it uh, for for such a short part. So there's a Radio City Music Hall Arquettes joke here somewhere, but I can't make it. I, <laughs> Workshop that for later, Chip. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Uh, okay, well, well, the other sort of big thing that happened, a turning point character-wise, was Zach finally yes. sort of making a decision. I mean, it, it comes down to it. He has to kind of choose one side over the other. I, I I never get the impression that he feels completely great about his choice, even even at the very end. But but at least he makes it. He has yeah. he's gotten off the pot, so to speak. What do you guys think? The, uh, yeah, totally. His 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 expression is a bit more of relief than anything else. Um, but. Every single time I watch this episode, I punch the air when he says now and dives under the door. And I punch <laughs> the air again when he rips the night watch band off and throws it at Sheridan's feet. I can't help it. Um, JMS did such a good job in establishing the growing indecision and, and Zach's being trapped between these two these two sides um, that, you know, to finally have him not only make a decision, but make the decision that as we, the viewers want him to make um, always gets to me. I I like how they didn't, how even at the end, after he makes his decision, he's not, it's not something that he's like, okay, I've made my decision. I totally know where, you know, what I'm going to do and I'm okay with it. That feeling of ambivalence doesn't really leave him completely it's he's not comfortable totally with everything that's going on. It's more of a this is the best of multiple bad choices. And this is the one where he's going to feel the he's going to hate himself the least afterward. But I, I like how he, he the actor plays it in that it doesn't feel like Zach is ever going to be totally OK with how things are going. It's just he's putting his trust in his friends and that he's ma- and he's hoping he makes the right decision, but he's not. Complete, he's not completely okay with it. Yeah, loyalty is a big thing for him, and he can't he he can't he can't be loyal to both sides anymore, and that really sucks for him. But you know, mm-hmm. there you go. I and and I can't let this go without just enjoying the deliciousness of poor tired Zach Allen heading back to his quarters, opening the door, <laughs> and there are three faces staring back at him, and then Sheridan get in. 
And yep. <laughs> and JMS, if he has a consistent uh, weakness in his scripting, it's overwriting. And mm. these these moments when um, when expressions and two words do the job are just gold. Mm-hmm. Now, something else that I feel is gold about this is he manages to keep us guessing. And part of this is uh, Jeff Conaway's performance. But, you know, on the one hand, you know that the command staff have approached Zach and they have put their, forward their proposition. And then you get the next scene where he uh, goes and tells Blondie McCarrion, you know, that, you know, the Narns are coming in and they're going to take over our jobs. And you genuinely can't be sure if Zach is turning the captain in or if he's setting up the night watch at that particular scene, you still can't tell. And it's not until the scene where they're all filing in and he joins and says, you know, yes, we, you know, everyone's here. Yes, we've got it. Then you start to maybe see it. Yeah. So the fact that the, that, that Conaway was able to hold that ambiguity until the last scene is, um, is props to him. Yeah, I th- I, I love that the first time watching it because I really wasn't sure what he would do. I think Stephen was a little bit, and maybe that's just because you know we've had a lot more television made this way in the interim. But Stephen kind of had it figured out. You know, as soon as that uh, we get the next scene with him talking to Blondie McCary, and Stephen's just like, I sense there's trickery afoot. He he didn't <laughs> quite buy it that uh, that that was happening, but he was still ple- he was still pleased, and he still had the emotional reaction at the point where Zach turns on Nightwatch. You know, he just says, "Attaboy, not Lou." Which is <laughs> Um, yeah so 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 i think i think that 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 worked and it was it was very entertaining for me and and i completely agree uh with everything you said mitchy about zach's ambivalence even after after the fact and and i think that's part of one of the things that i'm i'm really liking about his character is that he feels like a real person he's not he's not sort of a two-dimensional comic book character who just all of a sudden realizes this is the right way so i'm going to do it that way now no he still has you know there are still shades of gray just like so many different things on babylon 5 I cannot imagine um, Lou Welch of ever having that moment of. Uh, <laughs> no, Lou would never have joined. No, he would never have doubted. He would. He would have been. He would have been by Chief's side th- through thick and thin. So we wouldn't yeah, have had this true. subplot. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also nice because Zach doesn't ever lose his position as he's the he's the everyman. He's not on the command staff. He's not the guy who is involved with people making those big decisions that are affecting everybody else. He is the person who gets affected by the decisions made by people in charge. And it's nice mm-hmm. seeing the episode actually give him some agency in being able to in his choice makes a huge difference. So it's it's a yeah, it's a great way of actually showing how if even though you're not someone in command, your choices still matter, which plays in with the theme, the overall theme for the episode which is focusing so much on what your you know what choices you have and how you have to make them and learn to live with them. Yeah. He is genuinely disappointed when uh security guard Cupertino turns in his uh yeah. gun and and link uh, because mm-hmm. he wants he he wants this all to work. He wants everybody to get along and mm-hmm. you know he's not he, he's not looking for Cupertino to uh join the night watch out of ideology. He's just he he just wants I, I want this all he to go like, away. 
He yep. doesn't want the family broken up. Is what it <laughs> is. He's the middle child who's just trying to hold everybody together. It's uh, <laughs> it's pretty sweet. Well, well, speaking of making choices and 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 that sort of thing, let's turn uh, a little bit to Jakar and his you know sort of revelation. We knew he had a revelation. This time he talks a little bit more about it. Uh, he's talking about sacrifice and, and willingness to sort of put Narns in, in harm's way to help the humans who are some sort of key. Um, you know, it, he doesn't explain it very clearly, and Talon like puts that right back at him. You know, mm-hmm. his, his line about all all answers being responses, but not all responses being answers, which I love. I love <laughs> yeah. That line. yeah. Uh, so how do we feel about Jakar at this point, Chip? It's awesome. I mean, he, he's he's basically telling Talon, you know, you say you want a revolution. I want a, revel- I want a revelation. He's uh, all about <laughs> the... Um, he, I'm sorry, I can't I can't put words together anymore because all I have in my mind is the sight of Jakar leading his Narn into the into in, in replace the security and smashing his fists together and yes this third, is, third fist pump i mean <laughs> jakar is so fascinating in this episode uh we've got goofy opera singing jakar we've got goofy cagey saving us all on, on bridge, the, oh god, yes, on, 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 in the command center, and I thought Jakar knew how to intrigue, but he's too excited to intrigue right now. <laughs> I have no words. I love him in this episode. I just do. He's also got some pretty sweet boots. We get a great, I mean, for all, all that the, shot, the, the clunkiness oh, yes. of, the, of the direction. <laughs> I am a big fan of that close up on his boots, and then the pan around and up. That was that was nice. <laughs> I I love how Talon basically is giving it's. The way that the you know the way that the Narns speak to each other, the euphemisms that they use, it's something that I I really really like. But having watched, yeah, you know, having watched the series multiple times now, I've, like, and I'm a little bit older, I can told I can understand what it's a you know what they're really saying. And I love how it's Talon's moan of like, yes, I know, but cut the crap. Tell me what you really tell me what you really <laughs> understood. Um, and just Jakar's arc up until this point i think he has had one of the most complex and almost it's it's one of the more interesting character trajectories because from that first episode up until this point this is not where i would have expected to see him and it's really it's really earned it's very very much earned and if you if you told me in season one that Jakar would be at a point where he's willing to put himself on the yeah to put himself and his people on the line for uh, for others for another species. I would have been like, unless there is some sort of massive bribe involved, I would not <laughs> yeah. have seen this. But and it's but it's still Jakar. He's not doing this for free. There is still yeah he he still wants to get something out of it. But what he wants to get out of it isn't necessarily power or prestige anymore it's It's salvation for his people yes it's him seeing that there are things to sacrifice for his people's greater good did the rest of you all notice that he apparently had his amazon echo in the corner of his quarters set to ambient wind whistling noise in the background during that (laughs) scene in his quarters Uh, i i did not um but yeah, there. But it, the, that's an interesting choice. There, yeah, tell me about. It. I mean, there, for for no apparent reason, uh, when he and when he's lighting his candles and talking to Talon, you have the 
sort of faintly in the background, uh, clearly meant to evoke spirituality and, you know, that sort of thing. Completely, <laughs> completely out of place. It's, it's not a great directoral decision from a logic standpoint, and yet the feeling kind of fits. Uh, I think they scored better when they had the the military drums come in with the Narn as Jakar leads them in to take over security. Yeah. Yes. Yep, for sure. And, you know, speaking of Jakar, he he has for the last several episodes, he has been wanting in on this this alliance that he sort of sees forming under his (laughs) nose, but can't get into. And finally, it looks like he might have he might have have uh, any in finally, because he's he's helped out in this way. So Mm -hmm. I I, I thought it was, you know, maybe not quite as adorable as it was previously with him just trying to like tag along at their heels. Uh, But I like that this is that's that's what he's uh, sort of bargaining at this point. He's like, you know, all right, I've done this for you. And now please let me in. But I've I've got all the time in the world if you want, if if you want to wait. But but do you? Mm -hmm. His his line delivery is just uh, he he makes some of the most clunky dialogue actually work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Everybody Mm -hmm. close your eyes for a minute. And imagine Jakar as you see him in this episode. And then go back to the pilot and him asking Lita Alexander if she'd rather be conscious or unconscious for the meeting. <laughs> you know what? It's funny you say that because after we watched this episode, Stephen, we, we've talked a lot about the two different versions of uh, the pilot of The Gathering uh, because we had different cuts and then the different music. Stuart Copeland did the uh, sort of guitar rock uh, music for the original cut of it. So we actually went back and watched the beginning of The Gathering uh, with with the, the 80s rock guitar music and stuff. And <laughs> we were able to see and compare exactly how drastically different Jakar is. I mean, the makeup is very different, too. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. But personality-wise, I mean, he has... It's, def- it's not a different character. You can see that this is the same guy. But the place that he is in his life is so, so different. Mm-hmm. And yes, that scene, with, that scene with Lita is... It is... It is it is hilariously different at this point. Um, so I think that's another another strength of Babylon Five, where you can see that these are the same people that their choices have affected the way that they act and interact in the world. It's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. Um, I guess I mean speaking of since I was just talking about Stephen, we'll do our our quick little uh, control group check in. Um, he. He liked this one. He was he was very disappointed that Joshua Cox is in the end credits instead of uh, in the opening credits. He's still upset about that. Um, he turned to me. He turned to me very sadly at the end and just said in a in a, in a whiny kind of voice, "Is the telepath ever coming back again?" And then he gets up and he walks over and picks up the box set and he turns to me and he gives me a puppy dog look and he points at her face on the box and says, "See, I just I need to point this out." He's, very, very hung up on on the fact that we've got people in, in the in the spotlight in the credits and stuff who are, are not getting their day in the sun. She's not in um, the opening credits, Stephen. Give it a rest, well, sir. <laughs> but she is on the box. I will I will give him that. Um, and then we also he said he said he liked the episode. He thought it was good. Uh, if as I said, a little stiffly directed at times, um, simply because he said sometimes the crowd scenes sort of depend more on the director. But the main cast was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, as you said, Shannon, they know their jobs was what he said. And I think that's a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
he's excited about the uh, the direction things are going. He said uh, he said uh, stuff. He didn't say stuff. He <laughs> said stuff's going down. Uh, this this martial law thing. It seems like the beginning of a civil war. And then he turns to me and said, "Is this the great war they talk about in the opening?" And I <laughs> I'm like, "Did you really want me to answer that?" Which he does not want me to right. answer that. Um, so I didn't. And he's really liking Jerry Doyle at this point. Yeah, he was he was a big fan of Garibaldi in this in this episode and previous ones. So I thought that was interesting that that's the character that's sort of standing out to him. At well, this point. I mean, you did have that and, great uh, scene, Jerry Doyle. Jerry Doyle down. channels a lot of righteous rage there. Yeah, but Jerry mm-hmm. Doyle coming down to you know try and rally his troops and and failing that you know that's a key point that JMS will have his characters fail at what feels like critical times. You know, the fact that mm-hmm. Garibaldi could not rally the people to, to the Night Watch people to come back to his side and stop this mess. Um, you know, at that, that point, you just feel like, you know, oh, good Lord, Babylon 5 is in really deep trouble now. Babylon um, 5 characters are prone to doing one of two things. Um, <laughs> doing something that has no prayer of succeeding, but they do it anyway because they feel like they have to do it. Or making entirely incorrect predictions and assumptions about what's going to happen next. I love how fallible <laughs> B5 characters are. I, I yes. love Jerry Doyle, but it, it's it's every time I watch him do these scenes where he's really got a, you know, this scene in particular, I can't help but slot Bruce Willis into my head yeah. doing <laughs> the exact same thing. Because <laughs> it's, if he, it feels like a lot of hit, um, and I felt like, I felt this way through most of this, uh, through most of the series up until this point, where like, it's, I feel like Jerry Doyle is very much channeling what would Bruce Willis do in this scene? <laughs> Cause that is, that, that is a speech that I've, you know, that you've seen Bruce Willis give in different movies. Like, it, it's a very, it feels like a very diehard scene to me. Uh, in in his delivery, and I'm not saying that is a bad thing, but it's it's impossible for me not to make that comparison when he goes down and he gives that speech. I'm like, I just keep overlaying Bruce Willis onto Jerry Doyle every time. I guess I'm lucky I haven't seen enough Bruce Willis to do that. I was just taken not only by Doyle's performance, but the fact that the rest of the actors in the room were doing the perfect thing and they wouldn't meet his eyes you know he goes up to the one Mm -hmm. guy and the one guy looks away he goes up to another one he looks away he you know he's looking around the room and nobody will meet his eyes not even zach um yeah you know and here you know two minutes before zach was trying to talk him out of it so you know that's something that made the scene work very well for me not just the central actor's performance but the fact that everyone else was on board that's that makes that scene feel real to me because uh, mm-hmm. you know you watch something like that and you think that what the story is doing is setting it up for of course he's going to make the stirring speech and some you know maybe ha- half the staff will walk out with him or maybe they'll you know suddenly see the light and understand that this is you know that the, this is a bad choice and that's not what happens and that was not what I was expecting to happen the first time I saw this like the fact that it doesn't go in that direction and they have to find a different way to deal with Nightwatch is it it felt like a bold choice at the time and it still Mm -hmm. feels like a bold choice yeah Mm -hmm. well we have been going on for quite a while so I think we should probably head into spoiled space pretty quick does anybody have any last minute super super fast things they want to throw in before we hit the jump gate uh, once again, props to all all the guest stars: Major Barrett, uh, Louis Arquette, Marshall Teague back as Talon. Um, you know, all bringing to the table uh, 
present performances that match up with really solid performances from the main cast. Here, here. Louis, yep. uh, Lu- Joshua Cox as uh, Lieutenant Corwin has just one line in this episode, <laughs> but it's a powerful one. What did yep, we do wrong? Is. Very poignant. Yep. yep. Needed more of Anava. <laughs> Always here. need more of Anava. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. So before I get to assigning homework for everybody, Mitchie, why don't you tell the lovely people where they can find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Geek Melange, uh, which is also the name of my poor, neglected blog where I will write whenever <laughs> I have enough time. Um, I will do essays <laughs> about fandom, about representation issues, and occasionally I will put up recipes because I am a big uh, cooking geek. Uh, so you can find me on online at geekmelange.com. And I also am on Facebook uh, under Mitchie Trota. There, the follow option is turned on, so you can find me there as well. Fantastic. All right. Well, now homework for next time is Severed Dreams, which we will be talking about in two weeks. Uh, in the meantime, do find us online on Twitter and Tumblr at B5 Audio Guide, or better yet, visit our website, B5AudioGuide.com, and join in the fantastic conversation there. You can check out the spoiler-free threads where you can talk about Point of No Return and All Points Earlier, as well as the spoiler-friendly threads where you can also talk about everything else. So, If you are watching for the first time and are spoiler averse, now is the time to flee the station because we are about to take this whole podcast through a jump gate directly into spoiler space. I have to say, you guys, as exciting and tense as this episode is, and it is, like I said, I had to intentionally bring my shoulders down from where they were hovering (laughs) around my ears. Um... I honestly think this is another one where we don't really recognize quite how game-changing it is until after the fact, because things are in motion, but there hasn't really been time to think about what it all means. Steven was was interested and enjoyed it, but I don't know that it hit him that much harder than some of the other exciting stories that we've had at other points in the show. I think when he looks back at these events in retrospect after Severed Dreams, he might mm-hmm. see it as being more momentous than, than it seems right now. What did you guys think watching this I, this time? I, I think that's totally, totally fair um, because messages from Earth seems like, you know, ooh, this kind of big thing happened that, you know, is going to move the shadow war forward. And then all of a sudden we make this left turn and things are happening on Earth. Um, But it seems like this, you know, big quagmire and, hey, Babylon 5 managed to find a loophole and things are status quo again. And then we get severed dreams. Oh, my God. So this (laughs) this is. So we call it the Holy Trilogy for a reason. It's all Mm -hmm. of these episodes put together that totally upend the story arc into directions we were not expecting. Right. I think if you're paying really close attention, um, I think you should pick up at the end that, you know, you know, four of four of Haig's ships have gotten blown up and, you know, things are falling apart at home and. Sheridan and Ivanova are pretty clear to each other that things are going to get bad in a hurry. And yet it's delivered subtly enough that you don't necessarily get the expectation that the the very next episode is going to be such a wham. Um, I'm sitting here having seen it, knowing what's coming, and I'm just at the edge of my seat, just 
absorbing the impact of every little thing that's happening in this time. But, you know, um, I, I have to admit, Erica, that I am a little surprised by your continued uh, reports from the control group that mm-hmm. he's enjoying the episodes, but he doesn't quite un- he he hasn't quite absorbed just how big some of this stuff is and that's mm-hmm. that's perfectly appropriate but i'm just sitting back here going ah oh, steven <laughs> if you only knew <laughs> and he I think, will i think that's one of the best things about this series though is that you you kind of you kind of don't understand how big the scope was and how much the story was setting it up like episode from episode that it's this building to this big crescendo and there's a much wider picture because they're pretty strong episodes in and of themselves but when you see them all together it just really sort of hits you how big and how momentous the you know those pieces actually are Um, i watched this with my husband um Jesse had never seen this series before, and then after we moved in together, um, I had started picking up the DVDs because I loved, I really loved the series, and then he started watching it. And I remember we got to these episodes, and we went straight through all three. He would not, he's like, nope, I don't care, we're going straight through after... yeah, after point of no return into severed dreams, and you don't get a chance. They don't hit the pause button until the episode after severed dreams. Mm-hmm. That one, it, you know, you at least it gives you that chance to catch your breath. But for those three episodes, there is no, there's, there's no stopping. There's no pause button, and severed dreams was is just one where I had to go and just watch it after watching point of no return. <laughs> I wasn't just gonna, like, nope, I'm not stopping here. Severed dreams has my favorite scene hands down of the entire series <laughs> and i Dick. i have to watch it because it's mm-hmm. the momentum going through all of those together it is just it's a brilliant piece of writing indeed and yeah just comparing the different um experiences you know on the one hand we've got steven who is like yeah this is good and i'm i'm hooked and i'm interested and then chip mentioned um another friend of the podcast uh stephanie who has not seen the show before but is listening to the entire podcast every time and just not worrying about spoilers uh damn the torpedoes full speed ahead and (laughs) she's catching things that other people aren't. She mentioned uh, in last episode with messages from Earth that she got chills at the scene where Sheridan takes off his Earth Force badge and looks at it because she knows coming ahead that the succession is going to happen. Um, so, you know, even though she hasn't necessarily gotten to those episodes yet, she's because she's aware of the bigger arc. She's catching the kind of things that people seeing it through the first time through yeah. aren't going to catch until they rewatch. I think it's one of the genius of these of the series is that if you go back and rewatch it, even if you've seen it before, there are still things for you to catch and you mm-hmm. can start seeing how much planning went into it. Like those details like Sheridan, you know, looking at his badge, you you may you may not have to you didn't have to catch it the first time, but it was there. It was part mm-hmm. of the you know, it was it was part of the scenery. So when you go back and you watch it again and then you, oh ah, I didn't understand I didn't conscious maybe I didn't ca- consciously catch that mm-hmm. that um, the significance of that action the first time, but it was there, so it yeah. registers on some level, right? Or I or the line I wish Dylan were here. Oh, mm-hmm. she'll oh. be here next episode. <laughs> oh, she'd be here next episode. <laughs> yes, and you can wait for her to show up in that ed- that next episode because oh boy, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, Chip, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to. Uh 
tag in on the giving up the badge. I mean, take it all the way back to season two when Sheridan gives up his uh, stat bar to the uh, monks when mm-hmm. Kosh is trying to teach mm-hmm. him a, about a moment of perfect beauty. I mean, the again, the everything is just subtly set up because JMS, the showrunner, knows where the story is going, and it is it is such a gift when most when most television shows don't have not only don't have uh, a, a sense of whether or not they're going to be renewed for another year but mm. don't even but don't even try to have that sort of an arc you know it doesn't work for every show uh and there are sometimes when this fealty to the 5 year arc is uh, a a burden to babylon 5 but um the fact that the fact that this thing continues to build um we've been um some of our friends on uh, over the incomparable network have been um we're talking uh recently about the uh, civil war um uh movie the marvel cinematic universe and how oh, i'm seeing it this afternoon <laughs> so i'm not giving away anything but uh but previous movies matter to future movies you know the story mm-hmm. continues to build and whereas I think they've only got broad strokes of where the where the movie series is going to wind up when most of your principal characters have their contracts up and have decided that they're done with wearing mocap suits uh, for a living. Um, <laughs> this is a this is this is the same sort of thing, only tighter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. and there are just there are layers upon layers upon layers, and and I do love going back and, and seeing those things play out. And it's interesting too watching Stephen not recognizing some of those things and you know like i said before the uh before the jump gate steve he keeps asking me you know it, it, twice he has asked me in the last two days is this the great war they mentioned in the oh, opening right. credits oh, and both times, like, <laughs> you know he doesn't he doesn't really want an answer and of course i don't say anything and and it's not but at this point in the story it kind of looks like sort of, it yeah yeah it From is the opening credits consuming. yeah mm-hmm. because all the opening credits show you know, not only the Narn Centauri conflict, but um, Earth ships shooting at each other. I mean, that was like a big eye opener at the time when people first saw these opening credits. They're like, oh, hey, wait a minute. That was a Star <laughs> Fury shooting another Star Fury. What's going on? Yeah, so but we're, it but certainly we're, feels like it. But we're far enough into the season now where the shock of that opening sequence in mm-hmm. the credits has sort of worn down and you sort of take it for granted. That's true. But, you know, I think I think that having this be sort of all consuming plot wise is a nice bit of misdirection because, mm-hmm. you know, it is this is a big deal. So when an even bigger deal comes along in the form of the Shadow War, it's like, wow, like, what does my brain even do with that? So I'm excited to see Steven's reaction to the, the <laughs> ramping up and mm-hmm. ramping up. And I love props again to JMS's writing, just the the lines he comes up with that mean something in the scene they're in and have implications later on that you don't recognize um, in multiple levels, real life levels, as well as in the story levels. Intelligence has nothing to do with politics. I mean, that immediately made me think of, you know, the fact of the all the mess that's going on at home, that Clark is being stupid because he's after power um, rather than governing with any kind of intelligence, um, the we cannot tolerate greatness in our midst. Um, that, for this time, it made me think of Sheridan when he goes on to become the uh, president of the Interstellar Alliance, and he has to put up with even more crap than he does just as captain of Babylon 5 um, because he has achieved 
something major, and now people are just, you know, they're angry with him about it. They are fighting him about what he has accomplished um, because they're not ready to accept it. And then we have, you know, Delim arguing for him in her old age and defending him still. Um, things like that, the way they resonate, just every time I rewatch the show, I find more stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I I love it when series like this happen because the creators have planned out not every detail, but they have planned out what the major beats are that they want to hit in a long story so that there's always something where, you know, it's there are all these little things that you can pick up. And when you go back and you rewatch, you can find, oh, this thing that happened in season two reverberates all the way into season five. And, mm-hmm. you know, Londo's choices and everything that he does and the way that, you know, Veer, Veer f- figure, finally figuring out that maybe he actually does, there will be something larger than he can comprehend waiting for him at the end of his, at the end of his career is like all of these things. I just love it. All the building blocks actually creating something larger than just episode to episode. Yeah, and oh, JMS is so canny. I mean, one of you will be emperor after the other is dead, but she doesn't say one of you will be emperor (laughs) and die as emperor, and then the other one will be emperor. She, you know, for whatever reason, the way she states it has got the two of them side-eyeing each other so hard. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The assumption is that that Veer is going to kill Londo because it's it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine um, Veer... It's uh, Veer being emperor before Londo, but mm-hmm. but they don't they don't entire they don't they don't know that. Uh, but yeah, this is uh, we talked about Jakar's growth. Veer's got a very similar trajectory here, and you, you you see this episode, and then you imagine forward, and you see Veer picking up the um, amulet or whatever, and um, the flash forward uh, after uh, Jakar kills. Mm-hmm. After Jakar and Londo kill each other. And then you go all the way up to the end of the season, or Sleeping in Light, season five, episode 22, and Veer is visited by a ranger with news of Sheridan's impending death, and he is in bed with three or four Centauri women, and he's the emperor. <laughs> and it, it's good to be the king, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of of you know the the future and choices and all of that, we we did get the the cryptic cryptic speaking from Lady Morella talking about Londo having passed up two two chances to avoid his fate and and there being three more. And I think I mean at least I, I don't watch with quite the fine tooth comb that you guys do, but I feel like that was a little bit on the open ended side because like do we ever get a for a very firm recognition of what each of those those choices are. JMS online oh, refers yeah. to the JMS online refers to the eye that did not see Cartagia's splendor. Um, so I'm assuming that that is the reference to Jakar getting his eye plucked yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I maybe and of the, course him continuing to talk to Morden in the first place. You know, because he mm-hmm. actually was like trying to brush Morden off and stop, and Morden just keeps following him right into the elevator and grins and goads him into making that first declaration. Um, number two, I think there's some debate whether it's at which point he chooses to use the shadows to further his agenda, um, attacking the uh, Narn outpost mm-hmm. in one t- one place, or that there's like a couple of points where uh, his second choice could have been. 
the killing the man who was already dead that mm-hmm. um that could have been um some people read it as Morden because supposedly Morden was dead on um Zahadum mm-hmm. before he came back and started all of his messes. Um, but also some people interpret it as Lord Rifa because Londo gives him a two part potion, uh, a poison he, that will he's got the opportunity mm-hmm. to maybe kill Rifa at any time. And then, of course, he sets Jakar on him in on the rock cried out. No, no hiding place. So there's a open endedness there. I always thought it was Sheridan that it was huh. a possibility as well, because technically speaking, die. That's <laughs> not he's, he's dead for a while. Huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but there are multiple choices here. Yeah. I, the the odd thing for me about this is that the, the opportunities for redemption, you know, uh, she puts it in terms of avoiding the fire that waits for you. And that seems a little out of place given JMS's atheism, the uh, the notion that uh, Londo is trying to save his soul here. Um, that that rings a little oddly to me as I as I watch the episode. But, um, you know, in the end, Londo's sacrifice um, at the hands of Jakar, um, it, in the end helps save Centauri Prime from the Drock and um and, and and all this other stuff, which is expanded on further in the in, in the novels um after Babylon 5's run ended. But um you know, it's not just redemption for Londo, but it's saving his people um after all of the bad choices that he's made that's uh, I think in play here. Yeah, yeah I'm not sure I read it as as a, a soul thing, although that the, the the lines can definitely play that way. I thought he was just sort of trying to avoid his crappy fate. And, you know, I think you can almost read it ambiguously as to whether he ever does. I mean, because his fate at the end is pretty crappy. So, I mean, it is possible mm-hmm. that he does have his three more choices and passes them all up. And he's just left with a, a really sucky, sucky fate that he has foreseen and that mm-hmm. this is it. Or you could read it that that the the one choice that he finally does take is the moment that he lets Jakar squeeze the life out of him. And had he not done that, if things would have gotten even worse for him mm-hmm. and probably for Centauri Prime as well so yeah. i think you can read it okay without the the sort of afterlife aspect of it and it still plays yeah i mean death yeah. itself may be the, his greatest fear not what comes after it yeah i mean but centauri prime is literally on fire at this point at that point so yep. mm-hmm. uh i i i think you can i like that actually it can read ambiguous because we don't really uh londo never really talks about what his spiritual beliefs are i mean you hear jakar mm-hmm. jakar is clearly a very very spiritual character uh the membari have their own system of spirituality but londo we never really he don't, i don't recall he talks him about ever the really hundred talking gods and the family yeah. gods but it, it's all a system mm-hmm. that he grew up with yeah, yeah. it doesn't yep. seem to really have that much of a meaning for him so i personally took it as not as a metaphorical sort of uh, the, the metaphorical fires that are waiting for you not as a oh I'm yeah Jakar uh, sorry Londo is worried that he is going to go to hell for his choices. Yep. 
Well, speaking of Jakar, uh, that's a, that's another sort of interesting character to look at where he goes from here. We have now really had the the giant pivot point upon which his, his character turns. He's had that revelation, you know, brought on by Kosh, we think, and and now he is really ready to just scatter the uh, scatter the Narn in front of in front of whatever is necessary. It seems like to to sacrifice his people, and he really the moment that he. Is, he points to the book when he's talking to Talon and being like, you know, it's all here. I put it here. And I was like, oh, Jakar, there's your mistake right there. You just pointed <laughs> it out to Talon. You're, you're going to leave. You're going to leave it behind. And then you're going to end up with disciples at your door. Yep. Oh, boy. Here, I thought that his mistake was he was about to burn the book with all the being careless with the candles. Oh, well. <laughs> I thought it was very interesting because this episode, it feels like while Londo's choices are narrowing, um, Jakar's are actually expanding because it's reflecting his expanding awareness and priorities, which used to be very, very, very narrowly focused on himself and Narn. And mm-hmm. this is seeing him actually op- you know, opening himself to the possibility that in order for his people to survive, it means actually having to consider others. Yeah. And um, not just consider, but step up into the line of fire to to take part and yes. or protect others. And one of our commenters at the website made the very salient point that his message doesn't completely win the day among his people. Uh, because when mm-hmm. we get to season five and uh, the Drakkar manipulating the Centauri, you know, the Narn... Uh, go for retribution on the Centauri despite Jakar's um, protestations. And uh, that's, you know, um, it, it all goes back to, uh, it all goes back to episode one, season season one, when uh, Kosh observes they are a dying people, we should let them pass. And it's the poor, it's the poor Narn and the Centauri that Kosh mm-hmm. is talking about. Jakar gets it right. Not all of his people do. Yep. Yeah, which it, which makes sense because you know I I always give a little side eye to any property that has one character that's you know moving mountains politically. That's you know the, the great man theory of history is, mm. is kind of bunk when it comes right down to it. And in most cases, so I like the fact that he he is a very important figure and he makes some big big changes. But his one revelation is not enough to to stop, stem the tide of history and and an entire planet full of people who were broken and hurt by the Centauri. It, it makes perfect sense. It really plays well, I think, as as a narrative interesting you should well say that hurts. though because <laughs> in, in a certain in a certain sense b5 is all about a great man narrative <laughs> because sheridan creates the interstellar alliance that's going to last for ages and uh future rangers are going to be saying the names of sheridan and delin and all that stuff so mm-hmm. interesting tension cool. as we go forward into the rest of the series yeah yep something mm-hmm. that hit me this time in jakar's bit um was the fact that he has focused on the humans as being key to success. And that echoes um, what we, I'm trying to remember if we've seen it yet um, or if it doesn't come until later. Um, the fact that the Mimbari also, some of the Mimbari also, Delenn and her faction see the humans as key. So the Vorlons have been influencing both of those races. So it's, you know, and the Vorlons, um, apparently were the ones who decided that the humans are important enough that uh, we have to lead them where we want them to go. 
uh, to achieve our goals. Um, And then, of course, a million years later, the humans are basically Vorlons. We see, you know, a human who dissolves into an encounter suit and takes off um, and shoot. And now I can't remember the name of the episode. Deconstruction of Falling Stars. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Which that was originally meant to be the last episode, mm -hmm. wasn't it? Not quite. Uh, Sleeping in Light was always intended to be the last episode, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, they they shot it at the end of season four and held it just in case they got a, a fifth season, and so they did deconstruction really fast. But I had a I had a coworker many years ago when this was airing on live TV, uh, and she she assumed because she didn't have cable and you know, Babylon <laughs> Five disappeared as as far as she was concerned at that point. And she thought that it was a very, very weird season series finale. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. Well, again, we have we have been. This is a big episode, so I, I feel like it's okay yeah. to go a little long. Is there is there anything else to quickly cover here in spoiler space? I think I kind of like, and I, it almost certainly isn't intentional, um, but the fact that we've got this episode where uh, Zach is a pivotal figure, uh, Talon is introduced as apparently he's going to be a little bit more important than he has before, and those are two of the characters who are um, standing on the bridge as um, President Sheridan and Delenn leave Babylon 5 for the last time as Talon is now the new Jakar, mm-hmm. I mean, new Narn um Ambassador. Ambassador Zach is now in the place where Garibaldi was. Um, it just it's sort of you know all the way back here in season three, the, these characters are are being brought forward to the point where they will be able to step up and take over. My only mm-hmm. my parting shot is let us pause and mourn for the people who watched this in real time because after a point of no return, they went into reruns for a couple of months. Oh. Oh, what wow. sucky timing. <laughs> yeah, you know, I also wonder about how much of Steven's reactions to these stories is because of the pace that we're going at. And I recognize people watching, you know, this, this episode and the previous one had only a week. You know, they did have a whole week in between, but it was only a week as compared to the two weeks that, that we stretch things out. So I think since we've been doing this since the, the show started, Steven sort of is, you know, he's not getting swept up in the momentum of it quite so much because he knows there's going to be a big gap in between each each episode and he is he is excited about it i mean now that we are firmly into season three like i've it's been much more often he that he's turned to me and said hey when when do we get to watch babylon five again when when can we do that he's so he is excited about it but i think he's he's trying to temper his expectations a little bit because he knows there's always going to be a a screeching halt at the end of each episode for two weeks before we can move on I just love watching this and under, and just sort of being able to look at all the the sci-fi series that I have enjoyed since then and being able to recognize Babylon 5's fingerprints in oh, all yeah. of them. Uh, just seeing mm-hmm. yeah the way that they handle politics and the hard choices that you have to make. I saw yeah you can see some of that in Battlestar Galactica. Uh, the way just life on a space station when I started watching The Expanse. That was like mm-hmm. this. There are, you know, this is what Babylon Five could have looked like. It have if it had been done with the technology that we now have available. Like all of those themes, it's really great going back and seeing how much the series actually ha- influenced the genre uh, moving forward. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and future future showrunners took lessons from Babylon Five. Yes. Not only not only in how to do arc based storytelling, but also 
to be fair, and how not to do it, or and how mm-hmm. to do it without <laughs> killing yourself in the process. Um, because um, I I think B five B five the arc was kind of inflexible, and that led to some trouble in season five when uh, characters got mm. swapped out and things like that. Um, I, I am not a season five hater, but it's not as good as the pre- preceding four. Um, JMS tried to um, take a lesson, take that lesson himself when he did uh, Crusade. Um, and if Crusade had lasted longer, it would have been a little more flexible or flexibly oriented. Uh, but future future showrunners, um, they gave themselves a little more wiggle room, and I think that, that benefited their shows. Definitely. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Wow. This has been a great far reaching conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, Mitchie, so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really loved being able to get to geek out about Babylon 5. (laughs) It's nice actually meeting other people who have enjoyed it. Yay. (laughs) Yeah, we're out. We're out there. But I think we're a little bit few and far between when it comes to, to fandoms that are that are lot that are talked about a lot. these days. We're a small army, but we're growing. (laughs) you're here Uh, well as much fun as this has been it is time to wrap things up as i mentioned before your homework for next time is severed dreams so now shannon is at the helm uh shannon i can hear you doing a little dance from here go ahead and gloat (laughs) i'm so happy Mm -hmm. so join us for that in two weeks um yes again thank you so much to mitchy and as always thanks to all of you out there listening along with us we will see you next time until then this is erica in edmonton shannon in durham and chip in durham and you've been listening to the audio guide to babylon 5 (laughs) 